Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Daniel Major, who is the CEO of GoVX Uranium. They are a TSX-listed company with assets in Niger. We talked to him today about the Maduela PFS update. Um, they've been slightly hampered with regards to travel. Their uh, consultant is stuck in South Africa. So we talk about what they're hoping to do and the timings around that. We also talk about the liquid issue where the liquid guys are struggling to pay back the loan. Um, Danny gives us an update on what he plans to do about that. We also discuss the announcement by the Department of Energy last week and what he thinks the implications will be for Uranium Juniors and also his views on Niger as an operating country. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, Daniel. How are you, sir? Very good, very good. Enjoying lockdown. You enjoying lockdown? Are you enjoying it? What are you doing with yourself? It's pretty much the same as normal life as right. far as I can see. Well, as you know, I work from home to keep our costs out of the company, so I'm working from home. Great, so, great. You're in the middle of the countryside, though, so it's a bit Oh, yeah, easier, so right? oh, it's very easy to be locked down when you can walk to a disused golf course to take your dog for a walk. Uh, and restrictions are pretty quiet on this. So, yeah. yeah. So, no, life has not been too difficult. And I, I, I certainly, you know, have, uh, appreciate what I've got. And there's others who must be suffering it a lot more than I am. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. But since we last spoke, a lot of the world has changed. Certainly the world of uranium has changed as well. Um, we should oh, talk about some of those things. Should we do yeah, that? No, absolutely. <laughs> oh, we do. Well, I mean, it's, it, as they say, you know, a week's a long time in politics. And apparently... A, a couple of weeks is a long time in the uranium industry as well. well it certainly, is. It's, it's been it's been frenetic. Um, so since we last spoke, Nuclear Fuel Working Group have come back later than planned, but they've come back with their announcement last week, telling the world. Well, what do you think they told the world? Uh, everything that we already knew, they were going to tell us pretty well. So I don't think there was anything new that came out of that. Um, I mean, they'd already flagged the budget. Uh, requirement to buy uh, 150 million dollars worth annually. Obviously, it's going to be somewhat restricted. You can't give it to everybody uh, because otherwise, if you don't, if everyone gets too small an amount, your working costs are going to kill you. So you've got to keep it pretty restrictive given those volumes. So I would have thought you're looking at two or three guys who are going to get any benefit. How it's going to work and what price they're willing to pay is another question uh, that still has to be defined there um, of, of how that will work through. The rest of it was, you know, I think you and I discussed before, it was going to be geopolitical. A lot of this was geopolitical. It was Russia, China. Um, it, there's a lot of nice stuff written in there. Look, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Some of the things they've already been doing, supporting the SMRs, very positive, supporting development of the, the, the high enriched um, fuel. So a lot of the stuff was already going on. Um, I think a lot of it's going to need a lot more money if they want to suddenly break into the monopoly that China and Russia have been creating out there of selling nuclear technology from where they are today to go forward. Disappointed there wasn't probably more noise on supporting the reactor fleet that's already there. They talk about it, but, you know, FERC's recent work that it's been doing with uh, PJM um, and the changes there are not helping the reactors at all. Um, I mean, this minimum price issue that's been going through there has actually been hurting the reactors because they're not getting the credit for the um, the um, 
extra funds that they get for it, it gets taken away against them. So actually that's working against the reactors, not for them. So, you know, I, I think there should have been more to support the reactors. Um, what you've ended up really with is uh, we're going to buy some uranium, some of the producers, uh, and we're going to think about doing some really nice things going forward. Right. So we kind of have to watch. Well, some really nice things that, you know, they talk about, you know, leveling the playing field with uh, renewables. Presumably, presumably that means um, fun helping utilities with regards to keeping the fleet going rather than taking money away from renewables. Well, yeah, that, that's what they're saying, but that's not really what's been happening at the moment. Um, I mean, because what they've ended up doing is supporting the gas and coal guys. So the guys who are getting tariffs to support them, those tariffs are being removed uh, in, that, in, the, in the capacity pricing structure, um, which, yes, goes against the renewable guys, but the reactors are also getting those tariffs to support them and keep them going. So they're getting penalized against gas and coal. Um, so, yeah, if they're going to do something to help the reactors, then I, we need to see a much clearer plan coming out um, from there. And, you know, you see um, what's the one? Indian Downs is closing already. So, you know, there was a perfectly good reactor that should have been protected to keep it going. I mean, it's 40 years. It can go on for another 40 years. Um, so a little surprised. Is it a case of who's got the biggest lobbyist firm or the biggest budget? Um, Yes, I, 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 I think that is the case. And it was interesting. I, I was reading a letter that somebody had written, and it, it, it sometimes you get quite insightful little point. And this, this was guy was a, um, a renewables electrician, and he'd been kind of anti-nuke for like 50 years, and he suddenly realized that he actually thought they were quite good and they should be part of the thing. But what he was interesting was, his, isn't it interesting that the coal and gas guys are supporting renewables above all else? You know, we don't want the nukes anywhere near base low power. So it kind of an interesting insight from somebody from from that part of the industry. So, you know, I think the nukes are here to stay. I think back to the comment about geopolitics. Uh, I think this very much this nuclear fuel working group was a realization that the geopolitics was getting uh, out of kilter. And if, as we had discussed previously many times, had said that, you know, if America wants to stay on the same playing field, they have to move very quickly to catch up because they are falling behind. Um, and that's clearly where they're going to go with the SMR. So I think that's where we've got to be watching the US going forward is how aggressive are they willing to push the SMR story? Well, there's, there's kind of two stories running in, in parallel there. There's the how do we generate enough of our own uh, power our own, to meet our own yeah. energy demands. So we are going to need to support, you know, ut uh, uranium mining. That's what you know we're here to talk about, obviously today yeah. and ge generally. But then there's this kind of um, corporate America. How do we get and support um, nuclear private nuclear companies in terms of expanding? the potential of sales internationally and, and not just and again as we've talked about before not because of the sales per se but in terms of the control that that gives them um yeah. it, you know globally in terms of you know how countries that they're maybe selling these services into how they behave and you know and maybe connect to other types of contracts in other sectors so it is this geopolitical thing is you know run need, needs to have billions think, of dollars thrown at it. Well, I think, and that's the way I kind of read the document, which is we really want to do all this stuff, but the easy thing to do is this. 
which is the uranium mining. We really need the rest of this stuff, and that's where we need to drive it. But we also realize we got this. And, and don't, you know, don't take the geopolitics out of the uranium supply. You know, it's as much part of it. The fact that they want to keep the, the Russian quotas at the 20 percent, the fact that, you know, um, they want to have the ability to stop future imports if the America, the Russians start making fuel for U.S. designed fleet, they want to be able to stop the import of that thing. So it was very geopolitical in the what was presented. This wasn't just about jobs. This was a very geopolitical document that came out. Um, and the jobs were really kind of that fight in that geopolitical angle. It was very structured in the way it was doing. And it was like, we're starting here, but we're actually, this is where we want to be. Well, we're starting here because I, I guess it's the lowest yeah. common denominator and the, che- the cheapest component to actually yeah. you know, f- finance or help with. The rest of it is tens of billions of dollars, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of commitment, which they're not committing to in any, yeah. any way, shape or form. Yeah. Well, okay, so your, your view is it, it, it told you exactly what you already knew, what the market already knew. Um, is there anything in there, any glimmer of hope for non-US uh, uranium miners? I, I think generally, if the Americans are going, I mean, you've got to remember that the Americans still have the biggest fleet. Um, and if America is going to be very pro-nuclear going forward, that has got to be good for the rest of us anyway, because it adds, you, you know, we've become reliant on the growth coming out of China, out of Russia and these places. You know, to have the U.S. commit, as this document tends to indicate, um, a demand to grow forward in the nuclear industry, then that's good for all of us. It underpins an overall widening strategy on towards nuclear. So I think that's really good. Um Supply, the volumes they're talking about from the uranium production is not big. So it's not going to make a massive impact on the rest of the world. Part of that's going to go into reserves anyway. The fact that the DOE is not allowed to sell anymore on barter system, that's got to be good for all of us because that has helped remove material from the market. So I think overall, the fact that America is supporting its uranium industry, but more importantly, supporting the nuclear industry has got to be good for all of us. No one is constrained by it as well. Uh, any more than they are currently constrained. And I'm thinking about supplies into the U.S. So if, if Niger wants to, we can find contracts into the U.S., nothing stops us selling that either at the moment. So there's no quota system or anything like that. This is pragmatic from that point of view. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm generally, I'm generally happy with what the final result was. Okay. I don't think the market was. I think the market was expecting, and I'm talking retail here. But depends who shares you own. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, there was uh, a marked drop off after the twelve o'clock uh, phone call last Thursday. I think people wanted numbers and details, and you know, pointing at their company and going, "Well, this is the beginning, guys." So that 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 hasn't happened, obviously. Um, let me ask you about the utilities, though. You know what? What do they do now? Do they say, right, we've closed the Section 232 saga that is, that's shut down. That's the response. We know the intent uh, of the US uh, D- Department of Energy. We know the, um, the types of things that they're thinking of, of, of doing. It's a question of, you know, they, there's a process they'll have to go through to kind of, you know, to, to get that thing, get that ball rolling. Um, yeah. We're going to get back and focused on what we need to, which is obviously buying uranium. Well, I, I think they'd already done. I mean, they'd already done that. The, I mean, 
the, the, the biggest buyers out there have been the, the big utilities out of the US coming in for orders and and big orders have been coming out of there. So part of what you're seeing out there that's driving this price is the US utilities. So you've really got the utilities in there. You've got the producers there having to buy their material that they should have produced anyway. So mm. the, those and some of the traders who've obviously got contracts to cover. So those have been your three primary buyers that have been driving this price up going forward. Very little on the financial side, heavy on the, the utilities, the producers, and then the traders coming through. So I think the fact, as soon as you saw that quota issue get shelved, where it became very clear to the utilities that they were not going to be restricted on what they bought, where they were buying it from. And I think that had already been pretty well flagged. The, they could said, right, now I can just start going back to my normal life of buying what I need when I need it. Um, obviously, the, the closures have forced them into the market a little earlier than some of them probably wanted to come in. Um, but, you know, that's a positive for us because it's actually, you know, driven it up. But the combination of all three, the traders, the producers and the utilities coming into the market is what's really driven this price. It's, firstly, a great point about the you know removal of the quota as a, it, from the equation. Um, I think no one I've spoken to in the last week has mentioned that because it was a big deal. It was, you know, do we have a bifurcated market? You know, what, what does that whole space look like? So that's a really big deal and worth noting. Um, with regards to... Um, the price, the price is, I think it finished on Friday at 33.25. Um, doesn't really do anything for anyone. Um, but yes, and no. um, you look, you know, we're at 24 a month ago. So get, let's, let's take the, the pleasure while we can for a moment here. I mean, no one was, you know, I don't think anyone is expecting the uranium price to go from 24 to 50 over this period of time. You'd be surprised, what? Daniel. You'd be surprised. All right, fine. <laughs> Look, you know, at the end of the day, we the market in general, I mean, even the more bearish writers out there had been indicating this market was getting very, very tight, that we were clearly had supply deficit out there, that um, the demand was well underpinned. And even when you look at the power drop off that's been going on, it's not been that big. Um, you still got a lot of guys are producing power around. EDF is probably the one with the largest drop down. I think they're at 15, 20% drop off in power. The way they've dealt with that is to actually just hold back on the maintenance they've got to do. But then you've got counter guys who've got maintenance and reloads to do who've not done the reloads because they've got COVID restrictions on them. So I think those will slightly balance out. But you, I think what you've seen is a slight drop off in total demand this year coming through because of COVID, um, just a function of it. Um, but I think what has also happened, and you see that in the UK particularly, the, the grids have tended to keep the stable power on of the nukes. And in the UK, you've probably seen, they're paying the renewables not to produce. So they've kept them out of the grid because they can't handle that power at all and the volatility that's been coming from it. So I think that side's good. I think from the other side, on the demand side, the supply side, we knew we had a restriction. It was just waiting for that thing to kick it out the door and get going. And I think that's what effectively the COVID restrictions did, was put a lot of pressure on the, su on the supply side and flagged that there was a real risk. And the fact that in four weeks, you know, the, it, when this first announcement came out by Kazatomprom, for example, they went, oh, we, we may have some restrictions, but don't worry, we've got inventory. When they came out and said, oh, no, we're going to be 10 million pounds down for the year, 
the market went, oh, shoot. And the price really started to jump with that. You know, uh, Cameco is another very positive one that's come through. Again, when do they come back? That could be a while still. Um, I mean, we've seen the announcements today. You know, people are starting to worry about the second wave and the restrictions that come from COVID second wave. So you could see Cameco, people are starting at the beginning, talk about 12 weeks. That may be the case still. That's a lot of the, that's three months there. That's a lot of material not around in the market um, coming through. So I think what you have seen here is a real underpin of the argument that was there before to say, this is, there's a lot of restriction here, guys. You, there is not a lot of material. And we were always worried about where the inventories were going to come from. You know, wh where was inventory floating about? Clearly, there's not a lot of inventory um, because you've seen a sudden bounce come through. Um, so I think we've got to, even I think when Cameco come back, for example, I think we've got a brand new plateau sitting a lot higher. Um, if you look forward, you've got things like, you know, even next door to us, Common Act shuts next year. Ranger disappears next year. You know, these are still to come out of the system and disappear. Um, and that production still needs to be met going forward. So I, no, I think it's, it's, good, it's a good start and it, um, the, the speed of the reaction for what was really potentially a short period of time um, is, is a really good underpin for where I think the market goes and it, it flags all of the issues we've been dealing with. So you, just on just on the inventory levels, you know, we had John Borshoff yep. on about a week ago, and then he was, I think, using U, UXC and trade tech numbers and suggesting this is twenty twenty three, late twenty twenty three, early twenty twenty four, when you see the 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 actual crossing of of, of those uh, lines. Um, I get, I know he's talking his playbook because he's got a different model from most, but uh, there are we've had a lot of commentary and you know, predicting that perhaps we're not actually going to see a rapid rise this year. What's your yeah, take no, I on... I don't disagree with that. Mm. Um, you know, and I think that's the other thing we have to... And, and you know, I've talked about this before and previously is that the other... The, the two parts of this is the spot market and then you've got the contract market. Now, the contract book for most utilities is still well covered this year. And it's only 21, 22 that it starts to become actually... 30, 40% uncovered. But you've got to remember the guys who've got a book out there are going to start worrying about it soon and thinking, I better start covering my books. They're not going to wait until two years from now and then suddenly realize their book is now uncovered. So I think, yeah, you're going to see that change. I think the other one that we have, you know, I, one thing's clear, I don't think there's a lot of inventory floating around anymore. And what inventory, again, it comes back to the comments in the, in the World Nuclear Fuel Working Group document, which is, Inventory is one thing, fungible inventory is another thing. Just because you have, you know, in COVID, 400 packets of toilet paper does not mean you're letting it out of the door. So, you know, the same applies. A lot of this inventory, I mean, a lot of the inventory is in the US. The US government's not selling it anymore, you know, and it's confirmed it won't sell it anymore. So it's that kind of inventory that's included in the book that isn't coming out from anywhere. The utilities themselves, particularly European and the US utilities, have already shown in the charts that they're dropping their their inventory levels because they're having to consume them. And particularly during the whole Section 232, they were forced to because they didn't know what to buy. So they were dropping their own inventory levels and using them up instead. So I think that is all very much part of where inventory goes. I think the other flag to watch is going to be we're in this slightly weird position where the four-year out price is almost 39 
the quoted long-term price is 31. So, you know, at some point, the quoted long-term price will move. And when that happens, that will be another set of catalysts that will start the whole thing off. Um, because, you know, you know, I kind of point out at people, some people say that long-term doesn't matter. It matter, you know, short-term doesn't matter. Short-term matters a lot because it effectively drives where the long-term goes. You know, and a guy has a choice now, you know, he tries to sign a contract, which he won't get at 31, or he's got to buy four-year forward material at 30, promised to buy 38 then. So effectively, the long-term price is really 38 today. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with the um, pricing over the next month or so, month or two, actually, because mm. you, know, you had a, a point last week when you had the long-term price um, was 31, and obviously we're at 30, 33.25 on the spot. Yeah, I guess the 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 data points move at different speeds in, in that yeah, case, and I think quite a bit once a month. Yeah, so. so I think we'll see a, a, a reasonable reset um, for next month. Um, well, look, we we could talk on and on about the, about what's been going on in the market, market wise, but we're here to talk about you, so let's do yep. that. Um, why don't we Why don't we talk about uh, your PFS? Because I know yeah, I've seen a couple of press releases. You're saying you know you're trotting on with that. But oh, COVID-19 has affected you. It, it has affected us, unfortunately. Uh, but, but we've tried to mitigate that. So we, as a kind of, I've said to before, we, we'd already been working on the PFS, uh, on the FS. But because I've got so many changes coming through, I decided to reformat it into a PFS, simply because I, I needed to reset it for myself and to be able to go into the market uh, with off takers and the debt market and so look this is now what it kind of looks like re-educate so we can move forward and we'll take this forward and a lot of that had to do all the metallurgical test work that we were doing in South Africa unfortunately um, South Africa got locked down um, and I just finished a bunch of test work and unfortunately it's in the wrong building it needs to move to a different building to be assayed so I can't get the assay results from the test work until the lockdown. Now, their lockdown is the end of this week finished. So we've obviously got to try and get our perp, make sure we've got it all permitted to move. Nothing straightforward in our industry. Um, and then once we get those assay results, that will fill in the missing blank uh, that we have. Fortunately, though, we already had a set of results that we had done previously last year down in Cornwall. Uh, we'd run some preliminary gravity work. So we have a set of numbers. What we've done is just plug those numbers in for now. And the guys are continuing to move forward. So the process engineers are still designing uh, the mass balances, the flow sheets. Uh, they're pulling together at the moment the specs for all the capital equipment. And we'll be sending out the quotes, um, the quote requests for that very soon. Um, and we'll carry on with the OPEX and the CAPEX calc. So once we get the results, the real results, uh, or the updated results, uh, we'll be able to just plug that in. Um, and, you know, fingers crossed, they're not so radically different to what we've got because you can scale things as well. So, you know, that is part of it. So we make some assumptions and if we have to scale off the, the final result, we'll scale off the final result. Okay. So just remind me again, I know you touched on it there, remind me again why you've kind of reset the feasibility back to PFS. I, I, I know you wanted to try something. Have you changed your fundamental approach to how you're going to, you know, either build this yeah. thing out, out? And if so, what what is it that's so different from what you had before? The original plan when we did the PFS back in 2015 was all about maximizing net present value. 
that's what it was all about. It was a PFS. So we high graded the open pit. The lower grade material was then fed through. We brought the underground in as quickly as we could to get its higher grades. And then we charged forward um, from that point of view. Um, the problem, and then we used ablation and we used solvent extraction in the process pump. Both of them did a ton of work on, they showed that they worked, um, but neither of them are commercially used anywhere else in the world. Um, and so we looked at it and first thing was, this project has to work for less than $50. Um, it worked at 55. You get the return you needed at 55. And, but I went, Cameco said they need $50 to restart MacArthur River. I need to be able to show that this project is as good as MacArthur River because the one benefit we have is we have a mining permit and therefore we need to get into production as quickly as possible. So that was the first thing. So the last PFS, because it was done when everybody else was using $70, we used $70. So we got a great project at $70. I said, well, that's great, but we've got to make it work at, at under 50. So it will be done at sub $50 price on the project. The second thing to do was that the banks because of all the problems that they've had in the past for project financing, you have to have a simplified project. So we now will do it so that the project we present to the bank will basically be the open pit. The underground will still be there, but it will be pushed out further so that the, the bankable project that the bank sees will be reliant solely on the open pit. So we have rerun the op pit optimizations at $50. We've made them a couple of, we put new contractor pricings in, which we've just been quoted nicely. It all holds up very nicely as an open pit. And we added the additional pounds we had as well, because we got that license, the Agal license, when we did that deal with the Nigerian government. The other part we did is we looked at those two items of processing. The solvent extraction we we taken out. Um, and the reason we have it in there, which is not a norm, is we have a very high molybdenum grade. So we want to recover the molybdenum, but now there's an IX prill out there that will handle Molly really well. And we've tested that. Um, so we're putting that in. So that changes the back end. It also standardizes the whole back end of the plumb. But the biggest one was at the front end when we're putting gravity in instead of um, ablation to achieve pretty much the same thing, to massively upgrade our feed before it goes into where we put the consumables. Um, but at the same time to reduce the amount of calcite that goes through to the leach tanks because calcite just eats up sulfuric acid. And when you've got to import everything in the middle of the, to the middle of the Sahara Desert, I mm. want to consume it. So these were such big changes to the project that I just said, no, we need to be able to go to the banks and say, this is what it looks like. The Miriam open pit is the underground. It fits on the end. But what I'm going to present to you going forward as an FS is going to be an open pit mine. That's what I want you to finance. Brilliant. Thank you for that. That makes sense to me. Um, so you, that's why you feel that you can go very quickly from uh, PFS through to DFS because you've yes. been at feasibility before. You're just re-engineering some of the data points and the front end and back end. Yeah. Okay, that's understood. Can you talk to me about Just one other point I'll hmm. say for you as well. The other reason for doing it at that stage as well, so we can get a quick understanding for ourselves of where we are. So we reset our own benchmark and say, right now, what else is left that we need to change and how do we change it? So, you know, there is a reason for us internally. You don't want to go all the way to the end of FS and then realize you've got to, you know, 
just pick up your your flaws before you get there. Okay. So that was the other reason to jump to PFS as well. Okay, makes sense. Can I talk to you about ablation though, please? And I, I want your help to try and understand this because we've spoken to a number of companies with proprietary technology, ablation technology. And bizarrely, none of them have been able to commercialize that technology. Um, but they, it will work on their projects, I'm told. So ablation is not working for you because why is it not working for you? No, it's, not, it's not that it's not working. The question for us is that we obviously have to take the project to a bank. A big part of the bank's analysis is the technical analysis. And so for us, back to this phrase, bankability, that I, that I kind of use, you have to show that you've got the commercial structure there. That will include the underpin of the contracts because they want to know. So you've got the costs and then you've got the revenue side. But a large part of that is the technical risk. So when they're looking at it, they're going to say, but no one's ever used this before, mate. We want this factor to be built in. What happens if it doesn't work? Or the alternative, can you go away and do two years of testing, please, on or 10,000 tons of rock through a plant, and you then take the hit up front on the cost? So it's not that ablation doesn't work. It's actually a really simple process. You just take two slurries, as you know. So, I mean, it's just a big jet system with a lot of water involved. So it does work, um, and it worked well for us, but we decided... One, there's a lot of water in the middle of the Sahara Desert. But two, it was back to this bankability. So, so Whereas if we go gravity, we can phone up, you know, a local gravity su equipment supplier and say, can you deliver one to site? Yeah. So one, one last conversation to have with the bank. It exactly. used to be one of my favorite questions. Um, are, are, are we learning on the job here? So, okay, that's the reason. So, but again, I, I, know I, shouldn't, I don't necessarily want to talk about all of these ablation uh, trademark uh, products out there but that's a real problem it's not working commercially out there so it just it's another question I think for investors when they're thinking when they hear the yeah, word ablation I mean, it's okay. the scale of your project and the company I mean if you were a small uranium guy who wanted to do clean up on dumps or something like that where your capital budget is relatively small it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. If you want to build, you know, a multi-million dollar, hundred million dollar project in the middle of nowhere, and you reliant on project financing from a bank, it's a big problem to you. Yeah. And that really is your balance. And and it's only a problem as, as as long as you're not willing to do the test work and pay for it up front. Right. Let's 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 get into and talk about you. Um, press release recently, Linkwood. You've been experiencing some issues recovering your your loan. Um, Linkwood is an interesting one. Um, I think you, got, you know, I had an email with a client, a, a shareholder, the other day who'd come in post the Linkwood transaction starting. So we have to put it. I have to put it into context, really, of where we got to with Linkwood and, and why Linkwood is there. We, as you will remember, did a deal with Toshiba Corporation. We had originally borrowed cash and a uranium loan off Toshiba. I sold the uranium at $35 a pound for 200,000 um, pounds. And then we got to a point where we had 300, it was 380,000 pounds of uranium we owed them. They had obviously gone through a complete debacle Toshiba had at the time. Um, they had all of the problems related to Westinghouse. The year, previous year before that, they had gone through a complete um, accounting scandal. And 
Toshiba was cleansing its books and wanted to clear all of its risks off. Anything that had any smell of a risk, they wanted off their balance sheet, no matter how. So we offered to buy it off them. So we, they had nine million, a, a loan, we owed them $9 million based on the uranium price at the time, for the loan. But we agreed to buy the uranium loan off them for four, four and a half million dollars. So we were pretty well quids in on that transaction. Uh, I think in the book, we, the accounting shows we made a $5 million profit on that transaction alone. Part of that transaction, though, is Toshiba decided they wanted to clear out their equity as well, because they saw that potentially if there was a price fall, then there was a risk on the shares, and they didn't want to ever have to report on that as well. So we agreed with the group, Linkwood, that they would buy the shares. They, at the time, were trying to raise a fund, a mining fund, to put it in, and that's what they were doing. So everything looked great. Unfortunately, on the last day, they didn't have the funds, so the, the deal had to be structured. So we agreed to lend them the $2.5 million because otherwise the deal would have completely collapsed. And Toshiba could have sold the loan to somebody else, which meant someone would have had security over our Nigerian assets. So we felt the risk was very much paramount on our side that we had to protect the Madawela asset. And the risk was to lend them the money. So in our view, as a balance of risk, it was a pretty good balance. And we'd already made $5 million on a transaction anyway on the uranium loan. So then we had to work with um, Linkwood to recover what we could. Now, obviously, they had the Toshiba shares, Goviek shares, which they've been forced to sell. Um, they don't have any left at the moment. Um, and they have currently repaid us just over $1.1 million. So we've, you know, even against the original calculation, we're halved it almost. Uh, for where we've got. Linkwood continue to have assets. Um, and the reason we have had to deal with it is there are some restrictions on how they can sell those assets at this time. Um, they're still very fungible and they're actually worth um, more than the loan amount. Unfortunately, we have to now wait for that transaction to go through because under the accounting rules are what they are. Uh, we have decided that, you know, we will take that down to nothing, but we will continue to get repaid by Linkwood as we go forward. But it was really just to clarify where we stood on that balance sheet. Linkwood have been really good, uh, you know, and they've kept, you know, repaying as and when they can, and they will continue to repay as and when they can. Okay, so that's all securitized. You've got security over that. But your choice is we'll let them deal with the, headache the ad, they owe you money right so it was never yep. nice but you're saying they are probably in a better position than us to actually rectify this to monetize that is that correct the, what you're i mean with? one of the best examples is one of the assets the primary asset was actually an unlisted entity which it wasn't in our place to actually get it listed they have got it listed part of the the issue is under the asx rules if you do an rto your shares are locked up for a period of time and so that is that there was more locked up than we were expecting. Uh, and as a result of that, that's where they've ended up. There are some performance shares, which most of them will clear through anyway. But again, it's better that they look after that and deal with it and run the company than we take it on. And our relationship with Linkwood is very good. Um, and so from that point of view, in our view, it is better to work with them, let them deliver what they're supposed to do, which is the payment to us 
and let them work on the ground dealing with the operational side of that business. But because there is a restriction, you know, I have no idea what could happen to their asset, you know, a year from now. Have you written that off? We've taken it down to nothing. On your books? As a, as, on the balance sheet, yes. Right, okay. That's the most logical thing. And that's because of the, I, the, the rules as they stand. If you think there is any risk, you have to write something down. Are you going to get the that money back? You're not going to get the money. Right, okay, good. Okay, thinking the same there. So, okay. Yeah, no, because I mean, that's the point. We still have full security over all the assets. So, you know, we can, and, you know, they are already in default as defined by the forbearance agreement. So if we decide at any time, we feel it is in our interest to do it the other way around, and we are best placed to get the asset value, then we would call on our default. Okay. Until then, we feel it's better to work with Linkwood to let them make the repayment. Okay. I mean, it's just a balance of risk. What's happening in Niger? Um, it's sunny. <laughs> Like always. <laughs> now, this year's fine. Uh, I mean, you know, they're dealing with COVID to a small degree. Uh, they're dealing with it slightly different. They have a, a curfew at night and they've restricted travel in and out. Uh, the government's still very keen for us to get a hold and, and build. And I get regular communication from the ministry say, when are you going to start construction? Um, but, you know, we continue to do the other things on the ground that we need to do from a CSR point of view. Niger, obviously, like the most of Sahel at the moment, though, is obviously getting somewhat flagged up because of the uh, issues, particularly on the Burkina Faso-Mali border. Um, and then more recently on Boko Haram as well. But does it affect us? It has not come anywhere near where we are operating um, and will be operating in the future. So, you know, it's very much a border issue. Um, but what I have seen is an increasing, you know, understanding from... The bigger countries in relation to it, uh, particularly the French, uh, the Saudis, the Americans, all realizing this is a problem that needs fixing on the boundaries. Niger, though, remains very robust as a country. Um, so we're generally quite happy with it. So, I mean, just to be clear for people, you're referring to the sort of terrorist incidents from you know, Mali, Burkina Faso, and on the borders there, yep. thereof. It's, you know, it's affecting quite a few countries. But you guys, are plonked in the middle of a desert, nowhere. <laughs> middle of nowhere, and um, you've also got three U.S. Army bases. And it well, there's a big air base down in Agadez, and we have a, a, a Nigerian battalion sitting on top of our main deposit, underground deposit. Yeah. So you're you're, you're, you're some ways distant. North of us, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I think it's worth pointing out because we we got into a, a bit of flack. With some of the gold producers in in um, Burkina Faso and uh, Liberia, etc., you know they they were they didn't like us talking about these things. But you know it's making a big difference to the way people go about lives. And obviously there's some shocking incidents in well, you know, it last has year. Had on some of those gold producers, um, completely. I mean, some less affected, some fully affected. Yeah, uh, I think the other point for us is very much the way we're looking at the strategy going forward is we try to be as, as Nigerian as possible in everything that we do. And that's another part that goes back to our PFS and the way we're redesigning the PFS. But originally, we would have assumed we were actually going to pretty well construct and manufacture everything on site. Given the way the industry's changed, most of it can be modularized. So now we're looking at, a, you know, and part of the, the quotes going out is, we want you to quote for this component to be delivered in a container 
so we can just plug it into the bit that's next to it via some pipes or a conveyor. So, you know, we want to be in a situation where the Nigerians do all the civils work and then the Meccano kit just arrives and just gets plugged in. And that takes construction risk off site. Mm. It also delivery is easier because actually your, your, your biggest risk of timing then becomes customs. Um, because hopefully, you know, if a guy is building something in Australia or wherever, he's, he's in his own workshop building it. There's no reason why he should be delayed. You're not waiting, yeah. waiting for component parts to turn up in the middle of the Sahara Desert. You're actually just waiting for everything to turn up en masse. Okay. So you, you told the story about sort of, you know, cleaning up the, the, the process in terms of, you know, getting through to DFS so you can have an easier conversation with the banks when mm -hmm. you get to that point and you raised some money or about when was that a couple of six eight weeks ago uh, february february yeah seems seems like yesterday um you've raised <laughs> 2.3 million bucks is that enough to get you through to the dfs because i know you you canceled get me dfs but it won't get me through to the dfs i mean our burn rate and that's 2.5 canadian so what 1.67 us Right. So we we you know we cut our cost back down. I mean, I'm running currently at about um, thirty percent down on my normal burn rate um, where we where we normally operate. So we've been very lean and mean. Okay. Um, of what we do. But you're choosing uh, you're continuing to you're continuing to you're choosing to work rather than hunker down completely because you oh, want to move this I mean, forward. This PFS has got to get done. Um, right. And you know, my view is I don't want to come back after corrupt. COVID is finished and said, well, we actually didn't do anything. I sat in my son, my garden sunbathing. That, you know, that's not what we're, we're, what we're So where does that do. take you to? Where, where does that take you to? Because obviously with the market moving. I mean, you know, Q2, I can get into Q2. After that, we'll have to raise some money. Okay. But with the macro stroke, we've just been talking about Q2. Q2. Q2 with a better macro on the uranium. And more importantly, a brand new PFS should be coming out then as well showing where we're going and how this thing's going to get done at 50 bucks, then, you know, we're in a very much different position to go forward. Right. And uh, will you then look to raise the second tranche of the of the private placement you were trying yeah. to do? Right. Yeah, exactly. And we'll then have a greater view on how we get everything finished off for the the, DF, the FS. And that will be that will be the track where we're going down. Right. OK. Your little buddies down the road. Global Atomic yep. just put out a yep. PEA, really well yep. received, I think. Yeah, could be argued. Yeah, that was very good. Um, I did text Berlin and congratulated him on his PEA. <laughs> is that all you talked about? <laughs> uh, we talk all the time. <laughs> we do. We do talk. We do chat all the time. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So all is fine. That was a nice PA, but they got a nice grade, so I, I can't argue with. Uh, what they're doing down there. And your next question. <laughs> that, oh dear, that was that was worth it. Um, <laughs> so there's uh, there's no uh, talk of mergers or joint ventures or say, collaborations. If the, company, if the company had something to announce, the companies would announce something. Okay, we'll leave it there then. <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. It's wonderful. I, I can't believe we haven't spoken, but I guess that you know you needed something to talk about. But you know, I think there will be going forward. The market's moving at an extraordinary rate. Um, so you know, always welcome your commentary on that one. And obviously, yeah. 
sounds like Q2 would be a perfect time to catch up and talk about how your pivot. No, absolutely. Went. I mean, it's, it, you know, we've all been about getting up to production. That's what we've been about. We needed the market to recover. We've been getting our project ready for that. And so, you know, that's that's really, we're just getting on with what we need to do um, and trying to conserve the capital to do it and stay focused. Beautiful. Good man. Speak to you soon. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.